It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro with you in the front row. As always, it's J.R. Quitman, our creator, producer, and director behind the scenes. And this, again, is a CLNS Media Network podcast. This is episode 51, our first of our next 50, if you will, and it features Mike Quick. Grew up in North Carolina, played wide receiver for NC State, also ran track there, and had a nine-year NFL career, all with the Philadelphia Eagles. Currently, the 25-year analyst of the football team had a chance to call one Super Bowl and having a chance to maybe do that once again this season. Mike Quick shares his journey with us, what he's doing to help out kids in Philadelphia, and also his acting stint back in 2018 on the sitcom The Goldbergs. All that in this episode, episode 51, featuring former wide receiver Mike Quick. Appreciate you spending some time with us here today. It's it's right in the bi- middle of your busy season, but it's been a great one for you as the analyst on the Eagles broadcast. Uh, it, it's been an outstanding year in Philadelphia right now, right? Mike, it's a lot of fun in Philadelphia. and um, Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun because I love football and I get to follow football and, and watch this team, the hottest team in football in the NFL right now. And it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's there. What's that show? Everything's sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. That's kind of the way it is now. There, there you go. There you go. As a broadcaster myself, I know we, we all sound better when our team wins. So you're sounding really good right now as the analyst for the Eagles. Before we dive more into that, I want to get into you as the athlete that you were and, and your beginnings started in North Carolina, Hamlet, North Carolina, yep. born in 1959, grew up in the, the 60s, I guess, into the 70s. Tell us about life in Hamlin, North Carolina, what that was like for you growing up? Well, it was really simple. Um, a family of nine kids. My mom actually raised 10 of us because she took her sister's son and he, he and I were raised almost like twins because we we're the same age. Um, but difficult because, you know, I'm in a single parent family and a whole lot of kids, but we, we had a lot of fun. We had each other. We had a lot of love. We didn't have much else, but but we did have a lot of love in the house. That love had to come from your mom, Mary. What was she like in, in, in helping raise you again with all those kids around? As you said, you kind yeah. of raised each other, but what, what was her role with you? So uh, my mom was really special and not just um, for the kids in the, in the home that she was raising, but in the neighborhood, my mom was one of those ladies that uh, anybody in the neighborhood could come in at any time when we're having dinner or eating and they could sit down at the table, uh, anybody that, so she was almost like a midwife for a lot of the people in the area because when people were having babies, it was my mom that was there <laughs> helping them. She was just one of these people that was really big in the, in the neighborhood, in the community. And, um, you know, she showed me how, the, she was a great example on how to treat people. She was, in that respect, she was the absolute best and showing us every day how we were supposed to treat people. Didn't, regardless of where they come from, what kind of background, what they look like, she showed us every day how we were supposed to respect and treat people. And I know you do a lot of charity work now. Does that kind of stem from your mom's influence? 
Yeah, I think most of the good things about me, Mike, um, I would say it's a lot of my mom's influence, a lot of the good that people see in me. It's because of um, what she was able to put in me. Yes. Grew up in Hamlet. You went to Richmond Senior High School and you were a three sport athlete, right? basketball, football and, and track and field as well. Was there one? Obviously, you want to play pro football, but did you excel in another one? as well yeah i was i was one of those kids that could play everything so we and and during that time you played whatever sport was in season it's not like today where these kids are one sport kids and they play the sport year round if it's basketball they're playing or baseball they play it year round we played every sport that was just what you did in hamlet there was not a whole lot of other things to do so um I even started in Junior Olympic track. I, I remember, um, what was his name? Charlie Bishop was a track coach around that. It used to come around and pick up kids that he knew were talented kids and take them off to, to Raleigh and to different places to run against other kids in what they called the Junior Olympics. And I was one of those kids running in the Junior Olympics. Um, I started in football when I was eight years old at the in the youth program that started in Richmond County. Uh, Clyde Norton was my football coach at eight years old and all the way through like that whole era of my football years before I started playing uh, in middle school. Clyde Norton was outstanding. We were Hamlet Recreation. That was the name of my team, Hamlet Rec. And baseball, I played for a team called the Tigers when I was around that same age because they had baseball for these the youth baseball programs and um the team that i got chosen to was the tigers so you know i just grew up playing every sport and um oh and clyde norton also coached me in basketball i remember the first year i wore number 21 and i had to find out somebody in the nba that wore number 21 and i found that it was dave bing so and I had no idea who Dave Bing was, so I tried to find out who Dave Bing was so I could like try and play like Dave Bing. <laughs> That's a good role model right there, Dave Bing, one of the best in the NBA, right? Number 21, played for the Pistons, a Syracuse guy, and would go on yeah. to be the mayor of Detroit as well. So uh, yeah. a good yeah. role model. He had the car <laughs> business and went on to be the mayor. That's right, Dave Bing. As you said, I mean, you're playing all the sports at that time. It's not quite the case these days, but, you know, excelling and going on to play professional football, was there another sport that helped you when it came to football that kind of had some crossover to it? Well, the track and field was really helpful in the fact that I learned how to run properly. I was, you know, I was a a, uh, high school, you know, we set my 4 by 14 we set a state record uh, in the 4 by 4 I was a 110-meter high hurdler. Uh, I think all of that helped. And the fact that I was a real good basketball player, and many people thought that I would go away to play basketball and not football. I think I averaged 23 points or something close to that in high school at at Richmond Senior High. Um, You know, set the scoring record there um, my senior year. And, you know, I was just, like I said, I was one of those guys that could play a lot of sports, and I I was pretty good at at most of the sports. Yeah. You ended up going to Fork Union Academy in Virginia, but were you getting recruited coming out of high school for, for these different sports? Mike, I got recruited to play everything. And, um, 
the problem was, you know, I kind of goofed off in high school too much. And a lot of the, the division one schools that wanted me, I didn't qualify academically. So what I did was I went to Fork Union and, and at Fork Union Military Academy, I realized that um, I didn't even know what the honor roll dean's list was until I got to Fork Union. <laughs> and so then I ended up, you know, um, excelling as a, as not just in athletics, but also academically, I did really well at Fork Union, which set me up to go to college and I could pretty much decide where I wanted to go to school. But because Fork Union was kind of out of the way and I just didn't have any real, um, like I was used to being around girls in the social life of public high school and doing things that you did leave school and go and play. At Fork Union, I couldn't do any of that. I had to stay on campus, um, all boys school, and I just wasn't used to it. I got homesick and I said, well, when I go to college, I'm gonna go to school in North Carolina. My brother Dennis had just graduated from Carolina. Um, so I knew that that would be one of the options. I would go there and at least um, check out Carolina. Um, but I said, I'm gonna go to school in North Carolina. I didn't wanna go around to all of these different schools that came into Fork Union recruiting me. I just decided I wasn't even gonna go visit all of these schools because I knew that I was probably just gonna go to school in North Carolina. Yeah, you were the, the most valuable athlete at Fork Union during your, your year there. And and again, yeah. you ended up going to NC State and you ran track as well as football. What was that part of the deal? Did Again, because you were such a great athlete, did you let the, the college coaches know, hey, I want to try to do more than just football? No, um, I'll be honest with you. I ran track in the spring, so I didn't have to go to spring football practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. So I just didn't, I, I didn't think it was, and I was always that way. Like a lot of the training that they did in the off season and all of that, I just like, I mean, I like to run. So I was going to run anyway. I was going to stay in good shape, but I just didn't think that I needed to do all that. So when I had the opportunity to, to skip uh, spring track, uh, spring practice and run track, I decided I would do that rather than go into, you know, all the banging heads when I don't necessarily have to. What do you remember most about your days at, at NC state and, and playing for the Wolfpack? Um, it's a great place to go to school. It, it was great. Probably what I remember most are all the guys that I um, really got to know, got to be friends with. And I'm still friends with a lot of those guys. And um, really that, the, the camaraderie, that's something that just you, it's hard to find. The relationship that you build, the camaraderie that you have with guys and, you know, my roommate from college, I just talked to him two days ago. Uh, my other roommate, I had two different roommates, uh, Dwight Sullivan and Donnie Legrand. I still talk to both of those guys like regularly. And that to me was probably the biggest thing. I mean, you, you have, you know, a lot of experiences as a player and playing different games. And, you know, we went to a bowl game my freshman year and all these things, but it's the relationships. It's the friendships that I still have with people uh, from that era. Yeah, 1978 to 81, you played for NC State. Uh, what was it like? You, you talked about your brother going to Carolina. 
what do you remember about that rivalry? Was it a rivalry back then in the, the 70s, early 80s between uh, NC State and North Carolina on the football field? Yeah, there was hatred then. There's still hatred now between the two schools. <laughs> um, it's funny. And in, in, in Richmond County, I know that there's a – I had a really good friend. I used to go home with him after school before basketball games so I didn't have to go all the way home and then come all the way back to Rockingham uh, for the game. And his family – really were huge uh, University of North Carolina fans. And I think when I went to NC State, they were so disappointed in me <laughs> and, and they almost disowned me because I went to state rather than going to Carolina. And that was 1978. So, um, and it's still that way. There are people that you're, they're on one side of the fence or the other, and they, they don't like Carolina or, you know, the other way around. Well, you had a good career there, played in 44 games, uh, almost 2,000 uh, passing yards or, or receiving yards, excuse me, 10 touchdowns as well. At what point did you think that you had a chance to, to get drafted and the NFL was a possibility in your future? Uh, my coach, um, Red Pulliam at Fork Union Military Academy, told me that I could play pro football. So even before I even got to NC State. He told me that that I was going to be good enough to play in the NFL. And when I got to NC State, you know, after having that year at Fork Union, I was probably um, it helped me in so many ways, not just academically, but I, I got stronger. I got faster that year. I mature, I felt like my body matured as well as my mind that year that I spent at Fork Union. So when I got to NC State, I, I was a little more advanced than the other freshmen that came in. So I hit the ground running. I was playing in the very first game. I think the very first game I, we played was at, was against East Carolina, and I remember making a big catch in that game. Um, I, don't know, I, I was just – yeah, when I got to NC State, I was ready. You eventually got drafted uh, 20th overall by the Eagles. Now, again, you said you wanted to stay in the state, stay close to home. What did you know about the Eagles, about Philadelphia at that time once you got drafted in the, in 1982? Very little, like almost nothing. I didn't know a whole lot about Philadelphia. My my brothers, my my one older brother, Billy, he followed all the sports, and he was telling me about Philadelphia. Man, they are he – was, oh, he was saying that they've been in the playoffs the last couple of years. They went to the Super Bowl in 80, and, you know, he, did, he gave me the rundown, but – you know, it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to go to the NFL. I didn't care, you know. what. So I thought that the Cleveland Browns, because I spent a lot of time with them pre-draft, I spent a lot of time with the New Orleans Saints. So I thought one of these two teams were going to be the team that drafted me. Um, but then I saw the other receivers that went off the board before I did. Um, one went to Tennessee, one went to Buffalo, um, and the other went to the Saints. But I knew that I was going to be a first-round pick. I just didn't know where I was going to go. But I knew that I, you know, I knew that I would go high in the draft. What was the draft like in 1982? Obviously, now it's you know an entity of its own, and it's several days, yeah. and obviously on uh, so many networks as well. What was it like in '82? How did you find out that you were drafted by the Eagles, 20th overall? Well, they didn't have the red carpet. They didn't have the two-day big ceremony where you go and hang out and meet everybody and, 
in the big green room in the back where you walk out into, they didn't have all of that stuff. Uh, in fact, I was sitting in Raleigh at my girlfriend, her apartment, and I got a phone call. And it was the Eagles front office and Dick Vermeil got on the phone and he said, we're about to make you a Philadelphia Eagle. And I said, all right. He said, uh, can you pack a bag and get to the airport? I said, yep, I'll be right there. <laughs> so, so Dick, Dick Vermeil, the head coach, what was it like the first meeting that you had with him in, in person? You know, we've, we've had Vince Papali on this show before talking oh, yeah. about yeah. You know, Dick Vermeil quite a bit as well. What was your relationship like with him? It was great. Um, and I can tell you, this, I, I learned more football in the, in the first year of my first training camp than I, I thought I knew something until I got to the NFL and, and got into that first training camp. And Dick Vermeil was just a, a really, and is a really good person before he even, you know, before you know about him as a coach, the guy is such a great person, but, um, he was able to get so much out of people, out of the men that played for him because they respected the man so much. They appreciated him for the person who he is so much. And I still have a great relationship with Dick Vermeil. In fact, we did an event together just last week. Um, and mind you, Dick only coached me for one year. The year that he drafted me was the last year that he coached in Philadelphia. Uh, he was like literally burnt out and needed to get away from the game for a little while. So that's what he did. What was that transition like going from Dick Vermeil, new coach comes in and, and again, you're just starting your career as well. Did yeah. you, yeah. was it kind of the first time maybe you learned early in your career about the, the business of the NFL? Yeah, I guess it was, but I didn't. Um, the good thing is they didn't change the offense a whole lot. You know, we stayed in the same offensive system. So that was good. And Ron Jaworski was my quarterback my first four or five years. Um, and that was good. So I didn't have to make wholesale changes. There were some some changes within the staff, but they elevated the defensive coordinator at the time, who was Marion Campbell. They elevated him to head coach. So that part kept a lot of things intact. As you said, Ron Jaworski, your quarterback at that time, you became kind of his favorite target. What kind of rapport did you guys have? And and you know, you see it now as an analyst, you need that rapport, I would think, from, from a quarterback yeah. and a receiver, especially when it starts to scrambling situations and different things like that. So, Mike, the um, my first year in the league, 82, was also a strike-shortened year. And I got to spend a lot of time with Jaws, uh, Ron Jaworski, affectionately known as Jaws. I got to spend a lot of time with, with, with he and – the other receivers and running backs like Wilbert Montgomery and Leroy Harris and those guys, we would go to different high schools in the area in the morning, late in the, late in the day, and just work out, run routes, catch balls, and do what we do. We trained together the entire time that the strike was going on, and it really helped me to understand uh, Jaws and just spend time with him that wasn't like supervised time by coaching staff. We just got to know each other and really struck up a great rapport in terms of running routes, him understanding my body movement, body language, and and me the same with him. Again, as a go-to receiver at times, you're still getting open. You're still making the plays. 
did you see as your your career developed defenses starting to try to you know make sure that you weren't get getting the ball as often as you were really you know the, looking to do things defensively to stop you yeah 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 that happened quickly so after my rookie season um and i think i only had played 10 games that year you know my second year in the league i really took off and um because of that teams started to kind of have their defense catered to trying to stop me or limit what I was going to do. And so I started to see a whole lot of double coverage and or just rolled coverages or just playing zone coverage so that I didn't get big plays, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't have to adjust. They, they had to adjust to you is what you're saying. No, both. <laughs> no, it's it. So it was it. It's a lot of learn. It's a lot that you have to know, and especially when things are happening on the move. When like, like in split seconds, so you have to rehearse this stuff so much. So when you see movement, you understand movement, understand what they're doing to you, and you have to know what your counter is, what you have to do. So for me, there are always these adjustments that we had to make based on what the defense was doing, and and it took some learning for that, and it took some bumps, and but. I did. I did learn how to do it. Well, again, some some great moments for you, but maybe a, a big moment was that ninety nine yard reception, November tenth, nineteen eighty five. Take us through that play. Uh, hold on, the hold on. The NFL, hold right? On. Hold on. It was not a ninety nine yard reception. I keep telling people this. Jaws did not throw the ball ninety nine yards. Jaws threw the ball about. I'll give him fourteen yards. He threw a slant. <laughs> and, and then that the was, track skills took over, and then, right? And then he gets credit for a 99-yard touchdown. I tell him all the time, you threw a 14-yard slant. And then you're right, the track skills took over. But, yeah, that's kind of um, – if I have a signature moment or a signature play, that's kind of the signature play. It was against uh, the Atlanta Falcons at Vet Stadium. It's an overtime, so it's like a walk-off home run almost. It was an overtime touchdown on a slant from Jaworski. NFL and Eagles record. So there you go. Yeah. He gets crap for 99 yards, but you did all the heavy lifting <laughs> on that play for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you played your entire career with the Eagles. You go from Ron Jaworski to, to Randall Cunningham as your quarterback. I would think another transition type of moment for you, two different types of styles and different type of, of players. Was there an adjustment for you to a, a quarterback to the skills of Randall Cunningham. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and so you go from a quarterback on the field who's like having a coach on the field and Ron Jaworski, and then you go from Ron to Randall, who comes in really green and really not knowing and understanding um, the pro game yet and all these adjustments that go on. So that was a difficult adjustment for me just getting used to Randall and many times I'm out running my route and doing my thing and I'm open and I'm looking back and Randall's right behind me and like running the ball, telling me who to block. So yeah, it, it took a little bit to get adjusted to that. Was he ahead of his time? Do you think what he was doing out there and how athletic he was? And he just said quick to where, you know, he's right behind you when you think that you're wide open, ready for the pass. Dude, I've talked about this recently. If Randall, Cunningham was playing today, 
and the way they use quarterbacks in the run game. And I look at the way the Eagles use their quarterback and his skill set. If someone had known how to really, really use Randall's skill set, it would have been so hard to stop any offense that you put him in, utilizing all that he brings to the party. You know, offensive guys are getting smarter now, and they're starting to utilize the skills of these young guys coming out of college. You don't have to just sit in the pocket to be a quarterback anymore, and they're realizing that it's so much more difficult to stop an offense if they've got a quarterback that's a triple threat. But uh, they just couldn't see that back during that time. Well, if, if you're in that kind of offense that they're running now as well, I would think your numbers would be off the charts. Uh, I mean, how, uh, did you come along in an era where, you know, again, it was more smash mouth football, whereas yeah. your skills were utilized, but could have been utilized more. Absolutely. Um, even like making a college choice for me, NC State, for my skill set, wasn't the best. They were running the veer. They had Scott Smith like riding down the line of scrimmage, putting it in the belly of Ted Brown and, you know, and then run, run, maybe pass. And when I got to the NFL, it was pretty much the same. The Eagles, Wilbur Montgomery, Leroy Harris, left, right. Okay, if we don't get a first down, then we'll pass. And, you know, if if I was targeted eight times a game, I think that was a lot. Where today, wide receivers are targeted 18 times and 20 times a game. I never had games like that where I was targeted that many times. You see the quarterback or the, the receivers now kind of prima donnas. How, how were you in your day back in the, again, the eighties, you were dominant for, for the Eagles as well. Were you uh, a guy that had to kind of stay within the game and the, the, the you know, the, the frame of the team as well? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, Probably a little more than most. Fork Union. Fork, Fork Union straightened me out before. <laughs> no, not really. So I like to, I mean, I would celebrate a touchdown, but, you know, I learned how to act like I'd done it before. You know, I didn't go crazy. I didn't, like, pull a Sharpie out of my socks and, you know, go. No, I wasn't. I, I was never flamboyant. I was never too wild and got out there too far. Well, again, your, your entire career spent in an Eagles uniform, 82 to 1990. Is that yep. a point of pride for you when you see guys kind of moving around these days to say that I spent my entire year in one uniform? So I didn't think about it at the time, but now I am. Uh, it, I guess it would have been nice to check out other cities to see what it would be like to play in other cities. Um, but I'm so I'm so blessed and honored that I had the opportunity to play my entire career in Philadelphia. It's been a great place for me. It's been really good for my family. You know, I live in South Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, my kids grew up here. Uh, I got two grandkids now and, you know, they're going to grow up here. And it's, it's just been really good for me. It's been, you know, I, I could not have asked for more. And I live a life, quite honestly, that I, never could have uh, could have dreamt that I would live. My dreams weren't as big as the life that I live today. I can tell you that. That's, that's saying something. That's uh, something I, I'm sure all of us aspire yeah. to. 
you know? Yeah. Um, so 1990, you, you retired and partly it was, it was injuries as well. You came up at a time, not only with, you know, more running than passing, but also AstroTurf and the vet. Yeah. Did, yeah. did that play a role in, in your injuries and, and maybe your, your shorter career than, you know, we see a lot of receivers have these days? Absolutely. I, I know for a fact that um, playing on the vet turf uh, probably shortened my career, and I don't know to what amount, but uh, my, I had such bad tendonitis by, my, by the end of my career that um, many times just to get through practice, it, you know, it required medication. Um, so I knew that that year nine, when I realized that I had to retire and get out of the game after that ninth season, um, it was time to leave. And, and probably even the year before that, I could feel that, you know, my, my career was coming to an end. And so I just started preparing myself mentally for that, that, um, you know, when your legs are gone in this game, you got to move on and do something else. And, and my needs were so bad after that ninth season, um, it was time to move on. Yeah, so many fields, it seemed like at that time, had the AstroTurf, but obviously you're playing on it more than often because you had it at the vet as well. What, yeah. what was it like when you got tackled on, on that surface? Uh, it was very painful. And uh, it, it was pro so everyone talked about the surface, that it was the worst in the NFL, and rightfully so, it was the worst surface in the NFL. And we practiced on it a lot, not just playing on it, but when I'm having to practice on it and that jarring all the time, because you've got, you've got concrete slab and you've got just a layer between the slab and the AstroTurf. And it's just, it's just not healthy. And if you look at the turf today, it's so much better. It's so much closer to a natural surface and, um, even the ones where you have the rubberized pellets, it just it just feels so much better. And there's bounce to it. There's some spring to it. Uh, not like what I played on. Not at all. Yeah, certainly a different day and age for sure when it comes to uh, technology with fields and the surfaces. But but again, despite a, a shorter career for you, a great career, five-time Pro yes. Bowl selection, two-time AP first team all pro yep. as well. Do you, do you look back fondly at, at your career and what you were able to accomplish? Oh, absolutely. A absolutely. And I'll say this, the game owes me nothing. I had a, you know, I'm so fortunate. I got to live my dream, you know, growing up kid in Hamlet, North Carolina, coming from nothing. Um, I knew I was skilled and athletic and I could play ball. And um, as a kid running around, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, Charlie Taylor, I'm Bob Hayes, I'm, you know, some pro athlete. We all did that as kids. And, you know, I got to be that. I got to live that. Um, I got to live my dream. Game owes me nothing. It's been, it's been great. It's been a great ride. I've been very fortunate, blessed. Um, yeah. It's great to shine on me every day. <laughs> As you said, uh, you know, Philadelphia, great for you. It's It was a great fit. You were inducted into the, the honor roll, you know, Hall of Fame yep. in, in 2000 for the Eagles. What was that moment like? What did that mean to you? Because, again, Philadelphia, it's it's also a tough city and a tough fan base at times as well. But, uh, obviously, coming from the South, you became, you know, someone who was honored and and, and did such great things for that, uh, that organization. 
Yeah, uh, it's truly an honor when they select you into their Hall of Fame in Philadelphia. Um, because I, I, you know, I look at the guys who went into the Hall of Fame of the Eagles before me and playing, I never even thought about such a thing. I just loved playing and just wanted to compete and win. And just, I, that was just so caught up in that. But then when you, when it's behind you and you start to look back and you start to look at, um, yeah, very happy with my career, with what I was able to accomplish. And it's just icing on an already very sweet cake when they decide that they want to put you into their Hall of Fame so that you're remembered as one of their great players um, forever. And you're still around, obviously, as the analyst, and to be able to see your name there and still be involved, what, is, what does that mean to you? And, and is it giving you a chance to kind of educate the, the younger receivers now for the Eagles and say, hey, you know, I'm not just a radio analyst here. I, I kind of played here for a while and then did some good things. Yeah, you're going to ask somebody. <laughs> so, yeah, I um, because I'm around the team still a lot, uh, been in the broadcast booth for the Eagles for 25 years now, I do talk to players regularly and probably a little more um, when I first got into it than I do now. Um, but still, I talk to guys. Um, sometimes it's for – it's to impart wisdom. Sometimes guys need advice. Sometimes it's just, you know, just having just regular conversations with guys. I try to stay away from the whole coaching thing. I don't want to coach anybody. It's not my job. Uh, but if they need life advice, then – I'm always willing to sit down with guys and talk to them about um, what I know and what I've dealt with. Well, as you said, 25 years in the booth, 1998 was the first year. How did that all transpire? How did the, you become the analyst for the Eagles? Um, Dr. Harry Munn at NC State. Thank you, Dr. Munn. <laughs> no, no. So um, I got a call out of the blue, kind of like I had, I wasn't looking for this. When I got out of football, I went into business for myself. Um, but a few years later, the game started calling me back. Uh, when Comcast Sportsnet first went on the air, they asked me to come in on Mondays after games and um, do a segment, and they called the segment Mondays with Mike, where I would do a breakdown of what I thought of, of the game and what happened, blah, blah, blah. Um, I did that for a couple of years, and Two, yeah, two years after I started doing that, I got a call just out of the blue one day. I'm in my car, and it was um, Merrill Reese, who's my partner in the booth. And he asked if I would be interested in the job that Stan Walters at the time had as an analyst in the booth. And I said, man, I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't. <laughs> and he convinced me that that I could do it. Um, and then the radio station called. It was a C it was a CBS affiliate at the time. They called and talked to me about coming in to have a conversation with them about taking over that job. I said, all right. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I was terrible when I started. Um, but I feel pretty good about what we do now after 25 years. And Merrill's been there since 1977 as the, the voice of the Eagles as well. What, what's that relationship like, especially when you come in almost kind of midway through his time? 
Well, he asked for me. Yeah. So, so he must have known something. But we were, here's the thing about Merrill. He's been around forever. When I was playing, he was there and I had no idea. So he would always, I was always a guy. He could come to my locker after a game, win or lose, and he could get a sound bite. I would always um, be willing to have a conversation with him, no matter, no matter how bad the loss, no matter how big the win. He could always come to me, and, and I'll have a conversation with him about what happened in the game. And just the relationship that, that we fostered over that time and then post my football, um, I guess he felt like I would be good. And, and it had to f- first be approved by the Eagles, the person that was going to take over the job when Stan Walters left. And they were fine with it. Merrill wanted me there. And so I went out to the Eagles training camp that year and I sit up in the stands and I tried to figure out how the heck am I going to do this? <laughs> there was no how-to book. Um, so I had to just figure it out. So I did. Well, again, you must be doing something right. 25 years later, you're, you're still in the booth with Merrill. So you guys are... are- <laughs> Still paired together and, and such great moments, I'm sure, for you to be able to broadcast several Super Bowl appearances. But the Super Bowl victory as a broadcaster has got to be the highlight of your career. What was that like for you being in the booth to see the Eagles win the Super Bowl? Yeah, Michael, that was really special. That was uh, that was one of my favorite periods in sports. And I've been in sports all my life with that. Just that period in that day. In fact, I. I was so confident that that the Eagles were going to win. I um, so a lot of people cried after the game. I actually shed a tear the day of when I was in my hotel room, getting prepped for the game, doing all of my last minute stuff. And you know, I, I'm always a, a prayerful guy, so I I was I said a prayer, and I remember that day uh, shedding tears and just thinking, "Wow, I'm about to broadcast a Super Bowl win." because I just was so comfortable that the Eagles were going to beat the, the Patriots in that game. And just so happened that they did. The Patriots with Tom Brady, and you were confident the Eagles were going to pull it off. And I'm going to tell you why. It was the week, the game that they played before that against the Minnesota Vikings, who I thought would have, I thought the Vikings were the best team in football at the time because they scored so many points. They were a really good team. And the Vikings came to Philadelphia, and the Eagles just torched them in Philadelphia. After that win, I was very confident that there's something special about this team, that this team is about to get it done. What was it like in the booth for the, the Philly special? <laughs> the throwback to Nick Foles. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. Yeah, the, the throwback to Nick Foles. Uh, fortunately, I had seen it a couple of times in their practices, and I – kind of knew it when I saw it, but I just still, I have to wait and, you know, make sure Merrill gets, gets it all out before I can jump in. But uh, that was really special. I was shocked, but man, the thing works so sweet. <laughs> it was so sweet. Now there's a statue of Doug Peterson and Nick Foles down at the, at Lincoln Financial at the stadium now. Uh, and it's Doug standing there with the, with the clipboard in his hand where Nick came over to Doug and uh, 
he whispered to Doug, hey, how about Philly Special? And Doug standing there with the clipboard, and they took a, a nice picture of it, and they built a statue of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a big moment, obviously, one that, uh, again, anytime you beat yes. Tom Brady in the Super Bowl is huge, and you win that, uh, again, Super Bowl 52 over the Patriots for the Eagles there, and, and you know, maybe you're on your, your way to a, a repeat call that this year. Who knows? I, I want to dive into the, the rivalries a little bit because the the NFC East, certainly great rivalries. Who did you consider as your biggest rival during your playing days, and, and who do you think that is now? It's the same. It's the Dallas Cowboys. So many times it dep- depends on the teams. It, you know, the Washington-Philadelphia rivalry is strong. In many years, it's the, the Giants-Philadelphia rivalry is strong, depending on the two teams. But the Dallas one is, all, is a, it's a constant. It's always. It's very consistent every year. Fans, if you don't win any other game, fans want you to beat the Dallas Cowboys. And many times when players come into Philadelphia, they learn that right away. If, if they're not talking about it in the locker room, Whenever they go to the supermarket or to the convenience store or anywhere you go, folks are talking about beating the Cowboys. When you do that, most people are happy with the season that you have. Speaking of the Cowboys, who, was there somebody on the Cowboys that maybe gave you fits or somebody else on another team that, that <laughs> no, nobody gave you fits as far as trying to guard you? Um, anybody you had like a rivalry with individually maybe? No. So um, I'm, I remember the guys not in the division, guys in Atlanta used to talk a lot and that just like fired me up more. Probably, uh, you know, I had to go against Daryl Green a lot. Daryl Green was a great player. Yeah. Darryl, and, and we became good friends because we played in the Pro Bowl together several times. Um, but Daryl was really good and, you know, and great as a rival. Um, Everson Walls, same. And, you know, I got to play against Perry Williams, a guy that I grew up with in Hamlet, who also went to Richmond County and was drafted by the Giants. And I had to play against Perry twice a year, but they always would run a cover two where they could zone me and put two guys on my side of the field to try and keep me from making big plays on them. Two guys from Richmond County at the same time in the the NFL. That's pretty pretty unique there, especially – from, as you said, small town at Hamlin, North Carolina. Nine years as a player, 25 years as a broadcaster. Are there some people that don't remember you as a player and think that you've just been the broadcaster all this time? Is there is there that loss of connection? Yeah, but I just tell them to Google me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's been a long time since I played. And, you know, if I'm a young guy and I see a guy looks like me, I don't – you know, you don't know what you don't know. So I don't, you know, I don't feel bad about it. or I don't look at people like, you don't know me. I, not, not like that. I just, if you don't know, you just don't know. Um, but I haven't, let's see, my son's at 31. Yeah, it's been 31 years since I caught a football. I don't expect people to know who I am from that. But there are the diehard fans that do remember you. What, what were the fans like during your playing days? Again, Philadelphia fans, if you're playing well, you know, if they embrace you, you embrace them back, I would think. The Philadelphia fans are awesome. I don't care what anyone says. They are awesome. These people will spend their last dime 
to go out and support their team. Yes, if their team is not doing well, they will let you know. You will get booed. But at the same time, they're going to love you. They're going to support you. And that's probably one of the reasons I never left the area and probably one of the reasons why a lot of people who play here just never leave the area. Yeah, the fans uh, certainly are passionate about, you know, all their sports in Philadelphia. And, you know, that passion for you has, has led to a beer, right? You and Merrill have your own beer, and, and it's for a good cause as well. Tell us about the, the Merrill and Mike Philly special beer that's out there. So uh, a buddy of mine, Glenn Mack now, he's involved in the Country Hawk uh, Brewery Company. And he came to us and asked if he could do this beer and that um, the proceeds would end up going to the first tee. So I'm involved in, in kids and golf in a, in a big way, mainly trying to get kids um, from, under, from, from areas that really need help support, bringing kids to the golf course, using golf to teach kids life lessons so that they become better people, giving them the skills that they can use throughout their lives. Not So the golf is just kind of a side piece just to get them there. But what we really try to do at the first tee is try and build better people. And I am heavily involved in the first tee program. And when he came to me with this idea, I thought, okay, I'll do this. But if the proceeds or a portion of the proceeds that come from this go directly to the first tee program of greater Philadelphia. Um, I don't know how much beer they're going to sell. I'll never get a dime from it and I don't need, nor do I want a dime from it, but um, I'm okay with doing things like this. If it can benefit a lot of the kids that, that we serve and we serve uh, over like last year, we had like 1600 kids uh, in the Philadelphia region in our program, the after school programs and, uh, going to the different facilities. We've got um, 16 different facilities now that we are able to utilize to get kids involved and um, get them kind of off the streets and an area where they can go and do their after-school studies and such. And uh, there's just so much good about the program. So I'm involved in the first tee. So the proceeds from that beer sale, a large percentage of the proceeds will go directly to the first team program. And you mentioned Glenn, he's been a great resource for us and for our show. He helped us connect with you and, and other Philadelphia folks as well. Uh, why golf? When did, is that something that you took up during your playing days after your days? What, what, what is the connection with golf? I just love the game. I just, uh, I, you know, I told you I grew up playing everything. I never played golf as a kid because you know, Pinehurst was right up the street from where I grew up, but I didn't know anything about a golf course. I'd never been to a country club. So kids like me, I want to introduce to the game of golf. Kids who were like me when I was in Hamlet, a little kid that didn't know much about a lot of things in life that I've gotten to experience. I would love to have more kids like that experience the game of golf and all of the fine things that come from the game of golf. Again, your mom's influence coming out in you and some of the things that you do, charity in, in that area, which is great. Um, pop culture, you did a little acting, I, I guess. Is, is it true that I saw that you were in the Goldbergs, right, during the, the yeah. time of the, the Super Bowl run? Yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. So those guys, um, the Goldbergs, 
they're from Philadelphia. They're Philadelphia guys, and then you know the show hit big, moved to California, like like the Beverly Hillbillies, I guess. Um, and it's it's just funny that they decided to add me to the show the same year that the Eagles got hot and won the Super Bowl. It wasn't part of the plan. It just like serendipitous that it just timed out that way. And I got a chance to go out there and spend some time with those guys and uh, spend a couple of days on the movie set and, you know, pretending that I'm an actor. And it was kind of cool. I still get checks. These little residual checks sometimes is like $3, but, <laughs> but yeah, they, they still send checks. Future acting gigs uh, for you or, or was uh, that a one-time one deal? I'll keep my day job. <laughs> Well, your day job, again, is doing pretty well right now. The analysts for the Eagles are 12-1, and one, the top seed right now in the uh, NFC. What is making this year's Eagles team so special, and, and how does it stack up to the Super Bowl championship team? I think talent-wise, this team is a little better. And, um, yeah, I, I think just the overall talent and the depth of talent on this team is better than the team that, that won the Super Bowl. Uh, 52. This coaching staff is really good. Young, energetic, smart, really connects well with the, with the players. Um, and you know, this hybrid style of offense, it's a, it's kind of a mixture of what they're doing in college and in the NFL, just kind of meshed together. And it's working really well, and it's difficult for offenses or for defenses to stop this offense because there's so many elements to it, so many layers to the onion that it's kind of hard to stop. Um, and they've got such good personnel on the defensive side that it's a really good defense. Yeah, this is a good team and a lot of good young men. Again, 25 years doing this, how much longer do you see yourself doing it? Have you thought about that at all? Uh, I've thought about it a little bit. I think I'm going to do it as long as Merrill wants to do it. So my partner is, um, he just turned 80. He's been in it 40 some years now. And, um, when he decides that he's done, I'm done. Yeah. I don't, I, I can't see myself, uh, working with anyone else doing it. So. Um, I don't know how much longer he wants to do it, but I'm going to ride along with him as long as he wants to do it. But when he decides that he's out, I'm out as well. That says a I lot right there. I think you're the first person that I told this, like in a public setting. Well, it says a lot about your relationship. As you said, he wanted you in 1998, and you're to that point where it sounds like you enjoy what you're doing, but you may not enjoy it I, with somebody else. I love what I do. Um, you know, I know that there's a shelf life for all of us. And I know that at some point, um, it comes to an end and when it does, it does. Uh, I love every day of it. Um, but when it's over, I'll just find something else that I can enjoy. Well, I want to ask you one more thing, uh, 2010 inducted into North Carolina sports hall of fame. So again, yes. coming from little Hamlet, North Carolina to where you've, gone to and and your success of your career what did an honor like that mean to you because you look at you know i'm finding out there's so much talent in north carolina we've had a lot of guests that have ties to the state it's incredible oh yeah 
It is. It really is. Um, man, I'm just blown away um, by um, things like that. When somebody, when they want to honor me because, you know, I played ball and I was good at it. And so I, <laughs> I don't always know how to handle stuff like that, quite honestly. I, I mean, I enjoy it and I appreciate it. Uh, it's not why I did it. I just, I use the gifts that God has given me and it has taken me places that I never, ever dreamed that I could go. And that's really it. I, it, it wasn't, this wasn't my plan to do what I'm doing. It wasn't my plan. I didn't have a plan for this, but I'm here. And so I just try to make the best of every day that I have and just try and do it the right way. That's what I do. Well, you're much too humble. You've done some great things as a player, analyst. Again, what you're doing with your charities. How, how can people follow you? How can people maybe listen to the broadcast if they're Eagles fans, but they're not necessarily in the Philadelphia area? So I don't do much social media, so it's hard. to You can't follow me there. Um, I, I, I do have a Twitter account, but I don't even I'll, – I'll, re, I'll retweet stuff from time to time, but I'm not even – I don't do that. Uh, but uh, 94.1 WIP Radio is where you can find me, and I know that some people around the country listen because I get notes from people from time to time talking about uh, different things that they hear us talking about on the broadcast. Um, that's it. So when the Eagles are playing, you can find me somewhere on Sirius radio or on the internet on 941, 94.1 WIP radio. All right. Well, we'll certainly be listening again. Uh, you have a chance at another fun ride and uh, maybe some, some pre Super Bowl tears for you again, if it, it gets to that, the way this, uh, this team is going, Mike, uh, great to, to go down memory lane with you a little bit and, and, and talk to you and, and certainly uh, doing great things in, in the Philadelphia community. We appreciate you spending some time with us here today. Michael, great joining you. And uh, thank you for having me and all the best to you and your family. Well, thanks today to Mike Quick for being our guest here today, sharing his journey with us. We wish him and the Eagles nothing but the best here this season. Also, our thanks to Glenn McNow for helping connect us to Mike Quick for this episode and we thank you, as always, for watching and for listening here today. Be sure to subscribe and like. More great episodes to come soon. It's In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.